This is a 720 to go podcast from Chicago's WGN Radio 720. This podcast is sponsored by ADM. As one of the world's largest agricultural processors, ADM is uniquely positioned to serve the world's growing needs for abundant food and renewable energy. ADM. When it comes to the business of America's farmland, you need the information from the people who know it best. That's why we bring you AgriCast with Orion Samuelson and Max Armstrong. Well, good morning again and welcome to the Saturday morning show at eight minutes after five o'clock with the winter storm approaching the Midwest. And uh, from our studio in Scottsdale, Arizona this morning, they're looking for snow north of the Phoenix area, maybe at the 3,500 foot level. Below that, light rain, which is kind of unusual for the desert this time of the year. But good to have you along because it's been a busy week in the agricultural world with the January crop report coming out yesterday afternoon and uh, the market kind of a ho-hum approach to the whole thing. It really didn't do much to prices in one direction or the other. Let me very quickly at the top of the show talk about those numbers because the Department of Agriculture yesterday raised its estimate of domestic corn and soybean production. And that was a little bit of a surprise because of the adverse weather that we had throughout the fall that had been expected to curtail yields. And of course, with every government crop report, we have the doubters who say, well, how could they raise the average per acre yield of corn by a full bushel since the last report late last year? Corn production for the marketing year came in at 13,692,000,000 bushels, that's based on an average yield of 168 bushels per acre. Soybean production, 3,558,000,000 bushels, an average yield of 47.4 bushels per acre. Ted Seifried, who is chief strategist with brokerage Zaner Group in Chicago, said the market should be disappointed about the production number for both corn and soybeans. Yields going higher, not many people were expecting that, and he said that was a little bit of a disappointment for the trade. And the bigger-than-expected harvests, another blow to a U.S. market struggling with weak demand as the U.S.-China trade war hopefully is diminishing, but you never know until the agreement for Phase 1 is signed, and that is still scheduled for Wednesday of next week. Analysts have been expecting corn production of 13,513,000,000 bushels, soybean production at 3,512,000,000 based on the average of estimates given in a Reuters poll. And analysts had really forecast corn yields at 166.2 bushels per acre and soybean yields at 46.6 bushels per acre. So that 168 bushel per acre corn yield did come as a little bit of a disappointment and a surprise because of not only the fall harvest weather, but uh, the weather that we had at springtime that delayed planting, causing a lot of acres not to be planted because weather just wouldn't allow it. 
And because of the unusual weather year in 2019, the Department of Agriculture said it plans to resurvey farmers in Michigan, Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Wisconsin, as that bad fall weather prevented growers from finishing harvest. And so the January report, typically the government's final look at production for the current marketing year, but USDA said the resurvey may cause it to revise its harvest estimates for corn and soybeans. No word on when the results of that uh, survey will be available, but traders are certainly going to be watching for that. So that was one of the big influencers that didn't influence very much movement in the price situation yesterday. We'll review those closing prices for the week a little bit later in the show. Going to spend uh, some time talking about the dairy situation this morning. Max Armstrong uh, talking to a gentleman from Rice Dairy, and they'll be discussing the dairy situation, which of course is probably one of the more challenged areas of production here in the U.S., so uh, we'll be talking about that. And coming up here shortly, uh, a well-known name in farm broadcasting, a longtime friend, Ken Root, who has in his time been involved in more agricultural organizations and commercial agriculture organizations, retired on the 3rd of January. So I'm going to be talking to Ken about his years in farm broadcasting and his opinion on what he has seen as the biggest change in agriculture during his time. And I'm looking forward to sharing that visit with Ken and with you because it'll get into history and the change in agriculture that uh, many of us have certainly seen and a lot of producers have experienced. So stand by because we'll visit with Ken Root, who has been, well, with radio stations, including Des Moines, Iowa, and Watsika, Illinois. And we'll be checking in with Ken when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. Well, I have to admit that I think I would flunk retirement. But I have a good friend who's been a farm broadcaster for decades who is retiring, and I thought it would be fun to share some experiences with Ken Root, who has done just about anything and everything, not only in the broadcast industry, but uh, in the agricultural industry. Ken, are you really retiring? Well, I stopped doing daily broadcasts on the third of this month. So I'm a week into it, and the shakes are not getting that bad, Orion. So I guess the answer is yes. So you may not flunk retirement? Well, I think the jury's still out on that, but uh, I just think the time is right for me. Um, You know, I got all these nice letters from people, and I got to thinking, if I retire now, you know, I can read and hear these things, and if they have to give them to me when they're doing it at my funeral, I think I'll miss the response. So I'm going with this. Well, you know, I was fascinated as I went over some of the activities you've been involved in because I really have known you mainly as a broadcaster, but you did a lot of other activity in agricultural communications. Well, I did. I jumped into 
the corporate world in the mid-1980s, after I served as president of the National Farm Broadcasters, I guess I felt like there was more out there. So I, uh, I joined American Cyanamid, and they immediately told me that they wanted to start an association of all of their fertilizer chemical dealers. And I put that organization together, moved it to Washington, D.C., and um, was the executive of a wonderful group of people for four years. And then at the end of four years, we merged with another organization, and I was out of a job, which is a common theme through my career, by the way. <laughs> and so I started an environmental compliance company, and during the course of the next uh, eight years, I did a lot of work in the environmental community, which I also found interesting, and uh, quite a major move by agricultural retailers toward uh, complying with more of the laws that have been passed down to them through the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, Rodenticide Act. And uh, then I moved back into broadcasting, but I did move to be the executive director of the National Association of Farm Broadcasters for three years, uh, and that was a very interesting job. You and I uh, um, interfaced a great deal during that. And then my last go-around was with the Agribusiness Association of Iowa, uh, helping them get themselves um, started up on a big trade show once again, and then uh, cooperating with them and picking up a radio and television network one more time. And at one time, you worked for a radio station in Watsika, Illinois? Yes, WGFA. I was uh, their uh, national farm broadcaster. I never lived there, but I knew the ownership, Maggie Martin and family, and I had a great time with them. And uh, I called them last Friday uh, right while they were doing obituaries, and they put me on right at the end of the obituaries. And I'm hoping that people didn't think I died, but since I was talking, hopefully, you know, they assumed I was still out there. Well, we'll add to the uh, message that you are still out there and not as active in broadcasting as you were. But a question that I'm sure every broadcaster in agriculture gets at one time or another, what are some of the big changes you've seen in the agricultural community during your time? Well, since 1974, which I really consider just two years after the modern era of agriculture started, and maybe you would agree that the Russian grain deal made a huge change in agriculture in this country. Right. I have seen a, uh, a smaller number of larger farmers. Uh, I have seen more um, integration within the industry top to bottom, and I have seen the growth in productivity that was amazing. I recall one time, Orion, in the 1980s, you were doing a – uh, anticipated crop report, and you said it looks like this corn crop's going to be somewhere around 6 billion bushels. And I thought, my goodness, 6 billion bushels of corn. And now 16 billion bushels of corn has popped up. So the productivity uh, and the capability of the American farmer to produce every year, I think, is probably the most amazing thing that I've seen. I'd be interested in your reaction to the opposition to uh, GMOs. Well, I don't find it scientifically realistic, but I do find it that a lot of people don't know much about where their food comes from. 
and people can also uh, be scared by others who act like they have all the answers. And I really think that um, some people look act like it could always be grown like it was in the good old days, and that they also are fearing that scientists and farmers joining with them are playing God. And so I can see a natural response negative at the beginning of a new technology. The thing that surprised me is how long this has gone on to the point that there are people that have moved to organic as their way of saying we're totally abandoning everything that has to do with any new type of plant breeding, whether it's GMOs or whether it's gene editing. So I don't see that it's going to come to an end, but I do believe that everybody in agriculture has to tell their own story, whether you're a small farmer, a large farmer, or anybody in between. And, of course, now we're beginning to battle what I call laboratory meat, fake meat, or whatever term you want to give it. How much of a challenge do you see will that be to uh, livestock producers? Well, in the whole um, misnamed products area, all the way from almond and uh, soy milk, uh, to a number of other products that carry a name that implies something that's not true. I see that kind of parallel, those people who are moving to organic or are trying to move away from the traditional products that have obviously served them and their families well for generations. I really think we have uh, enough affluence in this country that the consumer can support this type of product, and unfortunately it will be at the detriment to the traditional producers. So I can't say that it's going to go away. The only thing I see of the fake meat is that it's a highly processed food. And if you look at the label, what it has in it is not really as good as what you get if you buy meat. So I'm really curious as to whether or not that's going to have any impact on the consumers who just have a very shallow view that traditional is bad, uh, the modern is bad, and that they want to go back to organic or natural. Well, it's also interesting to note, I forget where I saw the story, but the story that what uh, I think 18 of the ingredients in fake meat are also found in dog food? <laughs> Not a bad argument. Uh, I would love to be back on AgriTalk again and bring this up and let both sides fight that out. Uh, I think that is one of the most satisfying things I've done is just be able to be in the middle and uh, prompt or challenge both sides to prove their position and let the audience then learn from it and make an intelligent decision on their own. Yeah, and I've also said we're lucky to have choices here in the United States, and we certainly do. Other people on the planet probably may not have the choices that we have, but having been in the Chicago market for, well, half a century, I'm still kind of surprised at the questions I get from consumers who, as you say, really have no idea what goes into producing their food. Do you think we'll ever get that straightened out? 
Well, I hate to give a one-word answer of no, but I do believe that looking at the structure of agriculture today and the fact that you could take the farmers who produce 80% of our food and put them in a fair-sized football stadium, about 80,000 of them, means that we're an industry that has to deal with that situation. And uh, I really don't believe we're going to be coming up with uh, anything revolutionary in our communications. We just have to be steady in it, and we just have to meet each challenge one at a time with the best logical thoughts we can put forward. Well, I have to tell you, we're running out of time, but it's been a pleasure to uh, be involved in the same profession as you are. And uh, if you flunk uh, retirement, we'll expect you back on a radio or television station somewhere in the country, okay? That sounds good to me. Orion, from the day I became a farm broadcaster, you were a hero of mine. You've been a friend of mine for these 46 years, and that's one thing I want to keep going. Well, I appreciate that because that's one thing about the farm broadcasting community. You make friends that uh, you never lose. So it's been a pleasure working with you and uh, sharing your story with us this morning here on the station. So I wish you the best in your retirement, and we'll see you down the road, okay? Orion, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Ken Root, retiring from farm broadcasting. More to come here on the Saturday Morning Show. We are at the 531 mark here on the Saturday Morning Show, and always happy to have you along for our weekly visit to talk about the planet's most basic industry, producing food. And of course, besides food, they also provide clothing, they provide housing, and uh, now they're producing and providing fuel for our vehicles. So good to have you along. We always enjoy the opportunity to uh, share some thoughts with you on what's happening in this fascinating world of agriculture that Ken Root just described. It's all happening right here on 720 WGN Radio Chicago, where right now it's time for Samuelson Says. Hello again, I'm Orion, continuing the discussion on proper labeling of food. It's a challenge that just will not go away, despite rules and laws that are in place. I've discussed it several times and will continue to do so as long as the plant-based industry calls a beverage milk that contains no milk and meat that contains no meat. The most recent statement on the issue came from Dr. Dan Kovich, Director of Science and Technology for the National Pork Producers Council who said that the Impossible Foods naming of its plant-based products designed to mimic real pork is a brazen violation of the labeling law. And let me quote his statement. What's impossible is to make pork from plants. This is a brazen attempt to circumvent decades of food labeling law and centuries of precedence. Any adjective placed in front of the word pork can only refine it, not redefine it. It is not pork. It is not pork sausage. 
It can't be labeled as such. End of quote. He also said the National Pork Producers Council supports consumer choice and competitive markets on a level playing field. Accordingly, plant-based and cell-cultured products designed to mimic real meat face the same stringent regulatory requirements as livestock agriculture, including truthful labeling standards. Now, I'm surprised that livestock and dairy producers aren't more vocal on this issue. My wife, born and raised in the city of Chicago, is very vocal when she sees fake meat in the meat counter or fake milk in the dairy case to the point where she will ask the manager why those products, since they are plant-based, are not in the vegetable or produce counter. Well, she gets strange looks from managers when she asks the question, but it's a point that I think all people in livestock and dairy production should be asking the manager of those counters in supermarkets and stores. It's time that we start following the rules and the laws on food labor, and it's time for you to remind your elected representatives at the state level or the national level to work to enforce truthful food labeling. My thoughts on Samuelson Says. It's a presentation of Nexstar Media Group, and we're going to be talking about real milk and the people who produce it from the dairy cows and the goats and uh, other lactating animals, as we describe it, in the food industry. So uh, we're going to continue to talk about the issue and hope that finally we get some enforcement of the labeling laws and labeling rules. Coming up, a discussion of market activity. Max Armstrong standing by with his guest when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. We're going to talk about the dairy situation this weekend. Joining us in the studio is Andy Fallman from Rice Dairy. Welcome. I appreciate you having me. Thank you for your time. We uh, see people continuing to exit the industry. We hear about that from time to time. Mm -hmm. In fact, there was uh, someone was telling me the last dairy farm in Sangamon County, Illinois, that's around Springfield, is is going out of business now. Uh, it is, I think, for many people, a time to exit the industry because they looked at the, the situation. Maybe they were up in years. Maybe they were milking a smaller herd. Mm -hmm. What is the status right now? As we've come out of... Uh, 2019 is the the price situation for the producers at least a little bit better than it was uh yeah absolutely when you think about uh, you look at this time last year really right um i want to say the january class three futures were trading at about 13 dollars and 75 cents today it's about 17 bucks so you've seen a certainly you certainly seen a turnaround in price action uh, that's been positive for the producer um, you know, if, uh, in terms of break-evens, though, we've certainly seen those starting to grow as well. Things like inflation, cost of doing business, really. Labor has been a big piece of it. So you're seeing some of those intangibles, you know, things you really can't hedge, uh, starting to grow in terms of, um, you know, cost. Labor really has been a challenge for the people to milk cows. Mm -hmm. And and we have seen more movement toward automation of dairy operations because of that, have mm -hmm. we not? Absolutely. You're starting to see more folks uh, move towards robots. You know, I, I, I've only seen one, but it's a pretty interesting structure to be on. But yeah, I mean, you're starting to see uh, innovation in that space, and I think you'll continue to see it. 
Well, the millennial milker certainly uh, doesn't want to be tied to that farm quite mm-hmm. to the degree that mom and dad or the grandparents were. They want to get away every now and then. Absolutely. And that uh, robotic milker allows them to have a life, too, yeah, doesn't it, it? It's a pretty interesting setup. Let's look at, at what's guiding the market right now. Uh, the, the domestic milk consumption, fluid milk consumption continues to be in the spotlight and continues to slide, does it not, in a very competitive marketplace? You know, I actually think there's going to be some pretty positive change here for the fluid space. Um, in class one, you start to see more folks uh, throw their hat in the ring and bring some products to the table that I think are really value add. You, know, you think about things like Fairlife, uh, Organic Valley Ultra, A2 all bringing products that are starting to grow in demand, things that are, you know, like lactose-free, higher-protein milks. You know, um, my son, uh, he, he loves a glass of uh, Fairlife chocolate milk. You put it in front of him, he's going to eat his vegetables too. So I think there's a lot of the plot, uh, positive change for class one. I have a granddaughter who's the same way. And, you know, to me, that product doesn't taste like the traditional milk product that I grew up drinking. It's, it's got a little bit different flavor to it. But, it's got a little bit different flavor to it, absolutely. But obviously that generation coming on is important to, to be able to, to serve them. So you think maybe there, there is some hope for that fluid uh, market? Absolutely, for sure. And there's a different way they're actually going to be able to price it as well here. Uh, and I think it's going to make it a little bit easier for folks to not only forecast but budget as well. Recently, uh, Class 1 changed the way they're pricing. And so before it was always the higher of the two prices between class three and class four. Now it's an average of the two plus a static premium that they'll always get. And so before you never actually knew what the price is going to be moving forward or really what the contract that was going to be priced off of. Was it class three? Was it class four? It was always the higher of the two. But now it's an average between the two. Again, plus it's a 74 cent premium. So it makes it a lot easier for folks to be able to hedge it and budget accordingly out forward. How is most of that fluid milk marketed? In other words, how does it move through the the chain? I mean, I think of, for example, the school systems traditionally have been a big outlet for fluid milk. Mm -hmm. I see so much fluid milk moving over the counter, uh, for example, in drugstores, in a CVS or uh, a Walgreens drugstore. How does most of it get to the consumer? The supermarket, of course, is a big outlet. Absolutely. I mean, you, you really just hit on all three, right? And, you know, you think about it, too. You go down to the grocery store, and it's always in the very back of the grocery store, right? You have to travel through the entire grocery store to be able to actually get to the milk. I think it's the product that more people are continuing to buy. And again, with all the different you know outlets that they have between all those different products that are coming online, um, you know, I, I believe it's again higher demand at the grocery store level is starting to pick up, as well as restaurants. You know, restaurant sales are up three and a half percent between full service and quick service, and they're starting. You're starting to see more of those folks, you know, have like the small bottles of say like Fairlife, for example, sitting in the fridge. Those are handy. They're convenient. I love them. Mm-hmm. They started with the chug, which goes all the way back to I think around 1996 or 97, mm-hmm. and it was de- designed, I believe, by a man in Tennessee who designed that container for what would have been Dean's. Well, that now brings me to another topic. What's happening with these big companies, Dean's and, of course, Borden now? Why the bankruptcies in that uh, part of the industry? You know, it's an, it's an unfortunate turn of events for these folks, and I can't speak specifically to those, you know, to those two companies, but I can say the landscape, and you said it earlier, for Class 1 has been a tough go. You know, if you look at the last couple of decades, consumption has been down. Um, you also look at you have increased competition for products that are more in demand, again, lactose-free, higher protein. You're seeing all those different folks come to the table and bring more value-add products. Um, I think in, t- in general, though, the Class 1 landscape, again, seeing a lot of positive change between what they can actually hedge as well as the different product consumptions that are coming to the table. So, again, unfortunate turn of events. I can't speak to their situation, but I do think Class 1 in general is on the rebound. Let's talk about cheese for a moment. Cheese demand is important in this part of the world, isn't it, for that milk check? Definitely. 
And how's it going? Generally, it, it equates to how the economy is doing overall, does it not? Absolutely. Um, you know, last year, pretty aggressive price action. We think about it this time last year, the barrel cheese market was trading on a low of $1.16 a pound. Uh, fast forward to November, it got up to $2.40 a pound. So a significant change in price to the upside. Um, cheese demand in general, again, restaurant sales, full service, quick service, all both up 3.5%, doing very well in 2019. Uh, I think so in general, that cheese demand, and then you think about uh, our export space as well. Uh, the most recent export data showed uh, processed cheese, fresh cheese in demand, both domestically as well in the export space. And you're seeing some different export partners show up. South Korea, actually, uh, we exported more cheese to South Korea this go around in the last five years. In terms of total dairy exports, non-fat is very important, is it not? Non-fat is very important as well. And again, recent export data shows a strong build in that price. And um, I think you're actually starting to see more folks come to the table that we haven't seen in some time. And um, you know, European stocks have been dwindling here. And that's actually been a pretty significant overhang in the market for a number of years. Um, that has since changed. And you're starting to see more folks come to the table. You know, you know, Places like the Middle East, for example, starting to show up and buy some non-fat. Uh, Mexico, obviously, a big partner there as well. Um, and we're starting to look at getting some trade agreements in place. Um, you know, that'll allow us to move more milk powders out east. In terms of our total milk production in the United States, am I correct that we're now exporting almost, not quite, but almost 20% of what we produce, 17, 18%, something like, like that? It's in the ballpark of that area, yeah. Isn't that wild? I mean, when you think about it, because not too many years ago, our exports were, were pretty minuscule pretty in terms of dairy. Absolutely. And it shows you how important that really is. All of the images on television here of late coming from down under have drawn attention to what's been happening with the livestock in Australia. Their next-door neighbor, of course, New Zealand, is a big milk producer and mm -hmm. a dairy exporter. Is there any fallout from what's happening down there? We know generally the cattle industry in, in Australia is beef cattle. Yeah, uh, it, it's such a tragedy that's going on there, and you know our hearts really go out to them. Um, in terms of ramifications, though, in the dairy space, Australia is the seventh largest dairy exporter in the world. Seventh largest. Seventh largest, and uh, as of 2019, and you know they move obviously they're one of their biggest customers uh, in general. Asia, you know, I think of China. Uh, they do a lot of cheddar, uh, milk powders, as well as uh, fresh milk. So you know these brush fires are also compounding an, uh, uh, just as much of a problem in the drought that they're having as well. And so, you know, we've we've shown that the export data for us, at least, has grown. And so you're seeing that demand overseas really start to pick up. I think what we're about to find out, too, is that the, there's going to be a supply shock that hits the market and that you're starting to see some of these Oceania folks not be able to maybe potentially supply folks like China. We started out this discussion talking about the situation of the individual dairy farmer here in the United States. And it occurs to me, I've been seeing all of these social media images, of course, of farmers continuing to struggle with the harvest of 2019. The images coming in out of uh, the Canadian provinces, North Dakota, Minnesota, where farmers are still trying to get that crop out. That's another thing that was a challenge for many milk producers, was it not? In 2019, not only did they have still the challenges of the market and various cost of doing business, but mm -hmm. they also struggled with cropping. Yeah, being able to get the crops in the ground is key too, right? And uh, that was a struggle, especially in the Midwest. You know, every time I was up in Wisconsin, it seemed like it was just, you know, uh, every every field was was more or less a puddle. Right. Um, I, I think, you know, those are things that are going to continue to be a challenge here moving forward. But we're also starting to see some positive price action out in the forward curve. Um, I look at it and say, you know, my general outlook for dairy prices here. I think there's going to be a little bit of a hiccup here. Um, you know, we had a 240 barrel price. I think that really generated a lot of, you know, it, it triggered cheese supplies. Right. It triggered folks to make cheese. 
Uh, I think we're going to see the effects of that here in the first quarter. But I also think, too, those growing exports are going to be able to scoop that cheese up. Uh, and we can continue to have somewhat of a bull market here going into the latter part of 2020. So the producer milk price should be in the in the positive area through this year, you feel? I would say, too, even with the slide in the cheese market that we've seen here as of late, uh, the futures market out forward, I'd say even April through December, has actually reacted pretty positively despite what we've seen lately. Great visiting with you, Andy. Appreciate you coming in I to talk to us. appreciate you having me. Thank you very much. Andy Fallman from Rice Dairy. Nine minutes before 6 o'clock here on the Saturday morning show, and I hope you're prepared for the winter weather that's going to be moving across the Midwest and uh, some tough driving conditions, so be careful out there. I want to continue uh, the discussion that Max was having on changes in the dairy industry because there was an announcement this week. The Coca-Cola Company announced that it has acquired the remaining stake in Fairlife from its joint venture partner, Select Milk Producers. And Coca-Cola now owns 100% of Fair Life. That's up from its previous 42% minority stake. Financial terms of the transaction were not disclosed. But Fair Life was launched back in 2012, started with a high-protein milkshake called Core Power, and has grown to offer a broad portfolio of products in the fast-growing value-added dairy category in North America. Fairlife will continue to operate as a standalone business based in Chicago, and according to uh, the chairman of the company, uh, CEO Tim Dolman, he said, We are excited for the next chapter of Fairlife's growth and innovation and look forward to continuing to work with our partners across the Coca-Cola system to meet fast-changing consumer needs in a vibrant category. He said, we set out in 2012 to harness the power and nutrition of dairy and give people great-tasting products that provide the nutrition they are looking for, and our innovative product lines will continue to grow and improve with the strength and scale of the Coca-Cola company. Again, the one constant in life or in agriculture is change, and we're certainly seeing that happen in the dairy industry. Quite a change from the days I milk cows by hand on our little dairy farm in western Wisconsin. Well, it's finally here, I think. The Trump administration has invited at least 200 people to a ceremony next Wednesday, January 15th, in the White House, and they'll be there to witness the signing of the Phase 1 trade deal between the U.S. and China. But the two nations have not yet finalized what exactly will be signed. On December 15th, United States Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer set a deal to end the trade war between the world's biggest importer and largest exporter was, quote, totally done, minus translation of an 86-page document into Chinese. And White House officials said Friday, yesterday, the translation still has not been completed. 
Although White House economic advisor Larry Kudlow told the Fox Business Network it is virtually complete and the signing is all on schedule. Top officials from Beijing and U.S. lawmakers from states affected by the 18-month trade war are expected to attend the signing. It'll happen in the White House East Room between President Donald Trump and China's Vice Premier Liu He, that according to several sources. Past trade negotiations, of course, between Chinese and U.S. officials have been marked by last-minute upsets. In May of 2019, an expected deal was scrapped after Beijing eliminated binding legal technology from the draft. And U.S. officials said in December, Beijing has pledged to buy $200 billion more from the United States over the next two years as part of the deal. That would include some $40 billion a year in agricultural products, and uh, that is still in question in the minds of people involved in agricultural trade, particularly with China. I want to mention the fact that the Illinois Pork Producers Association has uh, invested in support of the College of Agricultural, Consumer, and Environmental Sciences at the University of Illinois. That announcement from the Illinois Pork Producers Association, a financial commitment to the new Feed Technology Center currently under construction south of the campus. And according to Rodney Johnson, head of the Department of Animal Sciences at U of I, quote, our relationship with Illinois Pork has been incredibly important for advancing the swine industry in the state and in the nation. He goes on to say their generous gift will assist the Feed Technology Center in becoming a national hub for new discoveries and advancement in animal nutrition. And I like to talk about this several times throughout the year, college scholarships that are available. But as I've said many times, they probably will not come looking for you, so you have to be looking for them. And let me share this recent announcement. The Compere Financial Fund for Rural America, that's Compere Financial's corporate giving program, is offering 120 scholarships to students this year. High school seniors pursuing a post-secondary education and will study an agricultural field or have a rural background are encouraged to apply between now and March 16th. Each scholarship recipient will receive $1,500 for educational tuition expenses. Qualified applicants must live in Compere Financial's 144-county territory and have a three GPA, GPA or higher, and recipients will be selected based on the academic achievement, agriculture and community organization involvement, and essays. To date, that fund has awarded 225 scholarships to graduating seniors. Value of those scholarships totaling $337,500. I keep saying 
scholarships are out there, but you're going to have to go looking for them because they probably won't come looking for you. The uh, Chicago farmers are uh, back in the monthly meeting business. Uh, They're meeting uh, for the new year on Monday, January 16th. And it'll be at what was formerly the Illini Center at uh, 200 South Wacker Drive. And it's going to be an interesting topic. If you're an absentee landowner and have a tenant farmer, you want to be there to uh, get answers to questions like relationships with your tenant, plans for your farm, and how you want to see it developed. Again, Chicago farmers to get more information on that. Well, it happens every week about this time, and it's happened now. We're out of time here on the Saturday Morning Show. Thanks to Bob Ferguson, our engineer who does all the hard work. Thanks to you for listening, and uh, thanks to Max Armstrong for joining us here on the Saturday Morning Show. Orion Samuelson keeps you connected to the world of business and agriculture on WGN. Hear his reports weekday mornings on the Steve Cochran Show and during the noon hour on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Plus, catch Orion and Max on Saturday mornings at 5 a.m. only on Chicago's WGN Radio 720.